When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. The Buffalo FBI field office borders Canada, and that brings some unique challenges. We're constantly walking that fine line, ensuring that we're upholding free speech while also looking at protecting the American people. There's so much more going on in FBI careers than just the gun and badge carrying special agent. I, on the other hand, can see Canada from my office. This is one team, one fight. It is a culmination of all of these groups coordinating on a regular basis. The concept and reality of violent domestic terrorism. He was also directed to specifically grab a female and to live stream her beheading all as a way of pledging himself to ISIS. Our guest this episode is Supervisory Special Agent Gareth Johnson of the Joint Terrorism Task Force at FBI Buffalo. He'll take us inside the FBI task forces that keep us safe on America's other border. Gareth, welcome aboard. Thank you very much for having me today, Frank. Of course. I'm glad we could journey into a typical FBI field office, this one, Buffalo, New York, with some unique aspects to it, and in particular, some successful work with task forces, the all-important partnerships across the various criminal and national security programs of the FBI. Before we get into those details, Gareth, How about sharing with us your journey into the FBI, where you're from, and what you've been doing since joining the Bureau? Sure. Uh, So I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My mother's actually British, and my dad's American-born and uh, grew up in Pittsburgh himself. And uh, I ended up going to Ohio University for my undergraduate program, and was actually in Ohio University when 9-11 happened, which had a, a profound impact on me and I would say probably many of my generation of uh, FBI employees. And uh, post-undergraduate work, I ended up moving to Washington, D.C., and I worked in the corporate sector and information technology for a few years. During my time in uh, Washington, D.C., I met a lot of people who worked in various government agencies, made friends with them, and that really inspired me to to join the government and pursue that kind of work. However, I didn't really have the background for it, so I ended up uh, leaving the corporate sector and going to grad school to get my master's in forensic psychology at Marymount University. I was very fortunate there that uh, the university itself brought in uh, both speakers and professors from all over uh, the U.S. government you know, to, to teach our classes, uh, do presentations, um, have uh, special initiatives, that sort of thing. And that was perfect for someone like me who didn't really come from a, a criminology or intelligence 
uh, legal or law enforcement background. On top of that, I was fortunate enough in the D.C. area to be able to be a student clerk with the Department of Justice Office of Enforcement Operations to be able to uh, become more familiar with the government process, as well as be an intern with the U.S. Attorney's Office National Security Branch for a semester. Upon graduation, I joined the FBI in 2009 as an intelligence analyst. I think that really rammed home the importance of being an intelligence analyst to me and how that should be utilized across the Bureau now by being one myself. Uh, for instance, there are major contributors uh, across the board, whether they're taking a 50,000-foot view from the headquarters perspective or working hand-in-hand with our squads uh, in the field offices. And really, just going to give you an example of what an intelligence analyst does is, you know, they, they take information. Hypothetically, there's a shooting, and they're going to go interpret it. And they're going to take a look at that information and tell you what that means and cross-reference it with other information and intelligence that they have. So not just that there's a shooting that happens, but they'll tell you whether that means that there's a increasing gang violence in the area, whether it's tied to a drug case, whether there's a national aspect to it or not. And that really is, you know, the impetus for a lot of our investigations in the Bureau. And we really, you know, can't do our job without them. You know, Gareth, um, it's it's worth pausing right there on the intelligence analyst position um, before we even get to your your special agent career. Because on this episode, if we've done, uh, excuse me, on this podcast, if we've done nothing else, I'm hoping we've exposed our listeners to the fact that there's so much more going on in FBI uh, careers than just the gun and badge carrying special agent. We've had a PhD scientist from the laboratory. We've had um, experienced veteran criminal analysts come on, and we're learning so much more about all of the jobs that come together to make the FBI tick. But now take us from that intelligence analyst or IA position and and tell us uh, how you got to the special agent career. Of course. So I was actually in the process to become a special agent uh, while I became an intelligence analyst. And I ended up spending probably the better part of a year at Quantico because I literally went from being an intelligence analyst training, going out to the field for about eight months and then going back to Quantico for another five months uh, for my new agent training in uh, early 2010. From there, after I graduated, I was assigned to the Washington field office working Russian counterintelligence matters. And really, that's where I gained an appreciation uh, for task force like work. That's because our investigations always incorporated our U.S. intelligence community partners, other U.S. government equities, our 5i partners who are in an intelligence and alliance between Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United Kingdom, and the U.S., our legal attaches overseas, as well as other equities in the area and around the world. I also had great mentors who really emphasized that you know we can't go this alone. It can't just be the FBI working these investigations, no matter whether it's national security or criminal uh, we have to work with our local, state, federal, and worldwide partners to achieve our objectives. Indeed. And so your your agent career, Gareth, um, have you, wh- where did you start? Where was, where was your first assignment as an agent? So my first assignment was at Washington Field Office in 2010. And obviously you're now in the Buffalo Field Office. How long were you at uh, WFO, Washington Field, and how long have you worked in Buffalo? Yeah, so I was there for about six and a half years, and then I went to headquarters for 18 months as a supervisory special agent and program manager in the counterintelligence division. Uh, From there, I was uh, selected as a supervisor in the Buffalo office and came up here to uh, supervise our technical and surveillance teams. And then in 2019, I was asked to move over to our Joint Terrorism Task Force based out of Buffalo. 
you know, the public's become um, all too familiar with the term JTTF, Joint Terrorism Task Force, I, I, you know, sadly so, because of so much terrorism and concerns. I think the, the phrase started becoming, you know, familiar to the public right after 9-11 and the realization that every field office was standing up a Joint Terrorism Task Force. And now, um, with the domestic ex- violence extremism so prevalent, we're hearing the phrase over and over again. So I'm glad to be speaking to a supervisor of a JTTF in the field. And so we can learn more about the nature of the work. Before we get there, walk us through the Buffalo field office and tell us um, where else we might be seeing task force partnerships under the same roof other than the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Sure. So our office is really split into two branches. We have our national security branch and our criminal branch, and we have multiple task forces that work under each branch. And in fact, really every program has a task force or variant where members from different agencies, local, state, federal work side by side on a daily basis. Just a few examples of these on the national security side are two joint terrorism task forces that we have one out of the Buffalo headquarters city and one out of our Rochester resident agency. We also have our safe streets task force working crimes and several other task forces that work on a daily basis in the Buffalo division. So the concept sounds like this is one team, one fight, um, and and really that the FBI can't do their job in isolation um, without all of the benefits uh, that other agencies and departments bring to the table. What does it mean to be a task force? What, what, What does it mean for those local, county, state, even other federal agents and officers who come together, is there is there some deputization of them? How is it that a local police detective has now powers to make a federal arrest? How does that work? So essentially, uh, all the task force officers go through the same security process that we do uh, for their clearances. And this includes anything from their secret clearance to a top secret clearance if needed. Uh, depending on which task force they're going to be assigned to and what kind of work they're going to be doing on a daily basis. Now, all the uh, local state officers are sworn in and deputized to participate in FBI investigations outside of their normal jurisdictions. They receive FBI task force credentials. They also receive any additional equipment that they may need to uh, you know, carry out their daily function. That includes oftentimes getting an FBI vehicle, uh, an FBI phone, uh, and any other equipment that they may deem necessary to basically fulfill their job as a TFO attached to the FBI. It was my experience in in the Bureau to see detectives and police officers really relish the assignment to an FBI task force. It it was often the the pinnacle of their career and and a career objective because they got to work on such complex and sophisticated cases with additional resources. What what else is in it for a, say, a county sheriff's department or a local police department? Why would they want to assign one of their officers and take a precious resource and put them on a task force? So there's really a multitude of reasons and benefits for local, state, and federal agencies to have task force officers attached to the FBI. You know, they come from a variety of agencies overall, but really they all get very similar experience in that they have a direct conduit to the FBI office in enhanced investigative techniques that we're able to bring to bear, uh, as well as our authorities and additional resources, whether it's through the local field office or the national level from FBI headquarters. 
this increases the collaboration, the flow of communication and ability for the task force officers to receive experiences, as you mentioned, that they would benefit from and their department would also benefit from as a whole. Uh, you know, this can range from anything from training opportunities to travel around the world for investigations. And ultimately, you know, a task force officer is rarely going to stay with us for the entirety of their career. So at the end of their tour with us, they go back to their departments and they take all of that knowledge, all of that experience, and hopefully they can then educate their own uh, departments, whether it be local or state or federal, on what our capabilities are and also really emphasize the importance of task forces and, and why they should continue to be a part of it. And in terms of training or um, compliance with the myriad FBI and Department of Justice regulations and protocols uh, required when in conducting a federal investigation. Do those local officers who are part of the task force, do they have to play by the same rules? Are they, are they now following the same guidelines that, that the bureau agents sitting next to them are? And how does that work? Absolutely. I mean, all the task force officers must adhere to the Department of Justice and FBI policies and procedures. This includes everything from training requirements to learning how to write the bureau way. It's boring compared to other agencies, but we do it for consistency across jurisdictions so that you know the writing is the same between New York and Arizona, California, Texas, North Dakota, even Hawaii and Alaska. So we talked about the benefit for a local or county police department. What's the FBI get out of having these additional resources be, be, be besides just having extra bodies? Where's the, where's the benefit in having this team working together? So I'm glad you asked that because there's a lot of benefits uh, that I'm going to try and do justice for for your listeners. Um, the, the most basic is that it's a force multiplier resulting in a broader investigative scope and threat coverage. You know, it's a one stop shopping is what you find in a task force uh, for all investigations. Uh, for instance, several agencies, states and localities have unique authorities and specializations they can bring to bear on investigations and a task force officer acts as a conduit for that. For example, say that there's a crime that occurs in the middle of Buffalo. You know, you have your Buffalo Police de- uh, Department that's going to be running that. However, the subject lives in another jurisdiction. Um, so we would logically get that local jurisdiction involved and maybe the New York State troopers as well. Now it turns into maybe a drug case or a firearms case. Well, now we can tap our task force officers from, you know, whether it be alcohol, tobacco and firearms and explosives or the drug enforcement agency task force officers to help coordinate the entirety of the investigation going forward. That, make, that makes sense. I'm, I'm recalling in my own career, this, this concept of one-stop shopping was just a beautiful thing, particularly in the fight against terrorism. The ability to, to go to one squad and, and find the, the customs agent who had certain authorities at the border um, to find the Secret Service agent who may have had certain authorities when it came to protecting the president, the state trooper um, who knew what was happening at a particular rest stop or or highway intersection and what that meant toward an investigation. It, it really was a beautiful thing. Um, tell us about your JTTF. Tell us about uh, some of the agencies represented and some of the unique challenges of working terrorism in a border office. Let's not forget um, the Buffalo FBI field office borders Canada, and that brings some unique challenges as well. Oh, you hit it the nail on the head with that one. Um, so for our JTTF up here in Buffalo, uh, we have task force officers from a variety of agencies, and that's local, state, and federal. Uh, we have members from 
Homeland Security, Immigrations Customs Enforcement, Department of State, Customs and Border Protection, as you mentioned earlier, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, Federal Protection Services. And we coordinate regularly with our other federal partners who maybe aren't on the task force, but are in the area and have responsibilities up here. Now, when it comes to the border, though, you know, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunity there. But uh, just for your listeners, let me give you a little bit of perspective of where we are in relation in New York State and to the Canadian border, if you don't mind. Um, so Buffalo is in the northwest corner of New York State, while New York City is in the southeast corner, approximately 378 miles away. And the New York office based out of New York City covers that. I, on the other hand, can see Canada from my office. And the closest crossing uh, of the four bridges that we have up here is approximately two miles away. Toronto, a major metropolitan area, is about 98 miles away. We are the busiest northern public crossing and the second busiest commercial crossing pre-pandemic. We also have Niagara Falls here, which is a natural wonder that brings a lot of tourists to the area from all over the world. And we actually have a lot of people who fly into Toronto internationally and then cross into the United States. So all those factors make some of the work incredibly challenging. However, it provides additional opportunities as well because we're constantly coordinating with our partners and we have a great relationship with our Customs and Border Protection. We actually have uh, members from Customs and Border Protection on our Joint Terrorism Task Force. We also have New York State Troopers on our task force that helps alleviate some of that burden and we can coordinate with them on a daily basis. And their leadership is also great to work with on a regular basis. Additionally, Canada is a member of the Five Eyes like that I mentioned earlier, and they're also great to work with. Now, they also have a multitude of local and national law enforcement agencies that we'd have to coordinate with. So oftentimes what we're doing is coordinating with our legal attache up in Ottawa, who has a direct conduit to those agencies. And ultimately, uh, New York office based out of New York City actually has extraterritorial uh, responsibility in Canada. So we're constantly coordinating with them as well. So really, it's not just us handling the border situation. It is a culmination of all of these groups coordinating on a regular basis to ensure that we are protecting the American people from potential threats that are coming and going across the, our four bridges that we have up here, as well as the waterway for Lake Erie. Yeah. On an earlier episode, we talked about the FBI abroad and specifically the legal attache program, where we learned that the Bureau has agents and personnel in over 60 nations. And it sounds like with regard to the Buffalo field office, you must be in almost daily contact with that FBI representative in Canada. And tell us how often the uh, you're liaisoning with your Canadian counterparts. Pretty regularly. And in fact, if it's not just me, it's usually somebody else in the office because, again, we have several task forces and all of them have a cross-border interest in their investigations. You know, it's not just like crime occurs in Buffalo and then the person is, stays here the entire time. They can move to another AOR. They can travel across the border. Um, and I apologize. I should have said uh, AOR is an area of responsibility uh, for the people listening. And uh, it's if you've met anyone from the government, you know we are the alphabet soup and we love our acronyms. So I apologize if I slip into that. Uh, but anyway, the, you know, our, our, whether it's our organized crime or our safe streets task force, whether it's a, a cyber issue and we have officers who are coordinating with the Canadians on that, or from or my perspective, the joint terrorism task force, our counterintelligence investigations, all of us are coordinating with our Canadian partners on a regular basis, as well as with Customs and Border Protection, New York State Troopers, uh, Liga Ottawa and the um, New York office. One of the reasons I'm glad we've got uh, an episode dedicated to to life in a field office is the listeners really need to understand that 
there's a local aspect to the FBI that they often don't see or understand. And certainly they need to understand that in every single FBI field office, including the one closest to them, there's a national security component. As you discussed, there's a counterintelligence squad. There's a counterterrorism squad. There's a joint terrorism task force, people getting up out of bed every day, simply trying to keep their community Safe, And one of those um, areas of concern lately is not just international terrorism, but the concept and reality of violent domestic terrorism. Is that also a responsibility on your JTTF? Yes, it is. It's actually a responsibility of both JTTFs that work uh, these violations up in the Buffalo Division area. You know, it's really a a fine line between uh, ensuring the FBI upholds the Constitution and protects the American people simultaneously when working domestic terrorism investigations. You know, just for people who are listening to give you a little bit of a difference between international terrorism and domestic terrorism, you know, for international terrorism, you're really looking at associations with foreign terrorist organizations, whether an individual is providing material support, they're involved directly with those organizations, they're a threat to national security. Uh, because they're going to conduct an attack. You know, it, it's very defined in a lot of ways and there's statutory authority that goes along with it. When we're talking about domestic terrorism, you know, it, it really becomes a little more amorphous. What I'd like to do is kind of paraphrase what Director Ray said recently, which is that we have an obligation as the FBI to investigate violence in federal law, not speech, not belief, not ideology. We have several guidelines and policies that must be followed so we are able to walk that fine line to investigate those who are motivated to go on to commit violence as a means to intimidate, coerce, or influence political or social goals. Now, while we don't have statutory authority under domestic terrorism, we do have a combination of factors that we typically look at. Uh, To provide you with an example of how we kind of delineate between an event and whether it would fall into an international terrorism or domestic terrorism side of the house, if there's a mass shooting, we're looking at ideology, for example. You know, we're looking to see is their ideology tied to a foreign terrorist organization or another uh, foreign terrorist threat that we would be looking at? Or is it a result of racially motivated or anti-government um, beliefs and ideology and it was acted upon violently? And that's really what we're doing. But again, we're constantly walking that fine line, ensuring that we're upholding free speech while also looking at protecting the American people. And we have to do that at the exact same time. We can't choose one or the other. Yeah, it is a delicate balance, and that and that challenge of working domestic terrorism has really come to light publicly since uh, the riot uh, on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. We've heard through the media that every field office uh, is touching that case, has an aspect of that case. What are you allowed to share with regard to whether you in, in Buffalo um, have had a piece of that massive investigation into the insurrection and whether or not anyone perhaps in your area of responsibility has actually been implicated uh, and arrested? Well, what am I allowed to say is yes. <laughs> so uh, yes, we, we are involved. We have some cases that have hit the news and that's really all I'm allowed to talk about right now because we're dealing with ongoing and active investigations across all 56 field offices pertaining to the events on uh, one six of the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, a massive investigation. And and just knowing that um, a field office like like yours um, has has been impacted and is working it is both reassuring, I think, to the public, but also kind of an eye opener that, hey, there are people in your neighborhood, uh, uh, in your town and city, maybe even down the block who were moved toward violence um, as part of 
uh, increasing concerns about extremism in our country. All right, let's take a moment to talk about something near and dear to all of us. Sleep. If you've read my book, The FBI Way, you know I wrote about struggles I've had with sleep. Helix Sleep has a quiz that just takes two minutes and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everybody's different, and Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattress is great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. And even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. Take the Helix quiz and get matched with the mattress you need based on how you sleep. If you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz. You order the mattress that you're matched to and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. And you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired magazines. Helix has been recommended by leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. If you're listening to this podcast, and I know you are, helixsleep.com slash bureau is where you go to take their sleep quiz, where they'll match you to a customized mattress, and how you get the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix even has a financing option and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash bureau. Now, let's get back to our discussion. Let's talk about um, the international terrorism side and maybe some success stories that you're able to share, particularly related to partnerships in that joint terrorism task force environment. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And so the the cases that I am going to bring up today are actually ones that I wasn't directly a part of. They were before my time in Buffalo. Um, nonetheless, I really want to highlight them because I think that they really embody the effectiveness and importance of task forces. Um, I have some notes with me because I was able to talk to the uh, case agents and intelligence analysts who actually work these cases. So please bear with me. Uh, I want to ensure that I cover everything uh, properly and make sure that I give credit where it's due. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. All right. So uh, the first case I want to talk about is the Lackawanna 6, and that may be the most nationally well-known case that came out of the Buffalo Division in the last several years. I'm uh, being recognized as the team leader of the uh, Buffalo Joint Terrorism Task Force, which was responsible for the arrest and uh, conviction of six uh, U.S. citizens who attended an Al-Qaeda training camp in the spring and summer of 2001. When I first came to Buffalo, we had a staffing level of, uh, of one person to work international terrorism matters here in Buffalo. Our task force, since it was formed just after 9-11, became somewhat of a template for other joint terrorism task forces. This case was predicated on a, an anonymous letter. Somebody from the Arab American community within western New York sent us a letter identifying people that possibly had gone to a terrorism training camp. In the spring of 2002, 
we got some rather significant intelligence that an individual who recruited our Americans from Lackawanna was part of Al-Qaeda. So the Lackawanna Six were a group of six Yemeni Americans the Buffalo Division investigated and arrested for providing material support to Al-Qaeda. At that time, uh, the Lackawanna Six were men who ranged uh, from about 19 to 30 years old. We only had as a division two agents working counterterrorism matters at that time. Uh, One was focused on international terrorism and one was focused on what we now call domestic terrorism. Yet that wasn't their sole responsibility. They were also working a multitude of other cases. So it wasn't their sole focus like our Joint Terrorism Task Force has today. About June 2001, a letter was received by the FBI claiming about 16 individuals were supporting international terrorism with drug money. Eight of those individuals were overseas at the time, training on tactics, weapons, explosives, and meeting with Osama bin Laden. Talking to the case agent, he said that that was incredibly far-fetched pre-9-11. That wasn't really a concept that we really ingrained and would naturally gravitate to uh, because 9-11 hadn't happened yet. The coal bombing had happened, but that occurred overseas and not in the United States. So they opened a joint drug and international terrorism case on the Lackawanna 6, and they returned within about a month or so of us receiving the letter. The case agent began utilizing a working group that they had been with in preparation for Y2K, if anyone remembers that, uh, to start running the investigation, which was pretty much the impetus for our joint terrorism task force, but it wasn't really called that yet. But 9-11 changed all that. It changed everything. Within a month, the working group was converted to a Joint Terrorism Task Force, and Buffalo Division has the distinction of having the first Joint Terrorism Task Force approved post-9-11. It consisted of 10 special agents, 19 task force officers, and most of them had little to no experience in international terrorism or even national security cases. But what really unified them was the fact that they all wanted to work, and they all had many years of experience working other matters like drugs, gangs, other criminal violations to bring to the table. According to the case agent, it was a great fusion of local, state, and federal law enforcement who just wanted to help and complete the mission. A few months later, they received intelligence that Kamal Derwish, an al-Qaeda operative, had been the one to recruit the Lackawanna 6. And in the case agent's words, they went from 100 miles an hour to 1,000 miles an hour. And that's often how these cases are run, where we may get a bit of information from the general public or uh, an anonymous tip. And we begin a regular investigation. We start gathering intelligence, identify some critical factors that are concerning. We ramp up very quickly. And then once we start really getting a full picture of what's going on, you know, everyone's hitting the gas at that point and we're going to a thousand miles an hour. So in this case, uh, because there were six individuals that we were looking at, there were many, many moving parts of this investigation. Uh, given the threat and given the fact that they had been overseas training in one of Osama bin Laden's camps, uh, we threw everything we had at this investigation from enhanced techniques like a national security letter or FISA to surveillances, interviews, and every other investigative method the FBI can employ. This was a massive and major team effort between local, state, and federal agencies. And even if there wasn't somebody specifically from a local or state equity on our task force, they were involved in some way, shape or form. The departments were all involved in, you know, everyone assigned to this case felt very strongly about helping and supporting the investigation in the FBI. There was a strong sense of national unity after 9-11 and this permeated into the task force mentality and really helped take this investigation to its ultimate conclusion. 
And so almost a year after 9-11 in 2002, they were arrested and the Lackawanna 6 pled guilty in 2003. What's interesting to note about this as well is that uh, Jabbar Obana, who attended the same training camp alongside the Lackawanna 6, didn't come back to the United States and is still at large and on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list. Yeah, and they say the FBI always gets their man. Um, Is there anything you can share publicly about where you think he might be these days? Yeah, unfortunately, that's not something I can comment on, given it's an uh, active and ongoing investigation. But at the same time, it's not something that we've ever forgotten about. Indeed. And if anybody listening has any any information or thinks they know someone who might, should they just call FBI Buffalo about uh, what they know? I would say call the FBI in general or send a tip through the online portal. Uh, you know, it's not just FBI Buffalo, but our 56 field offices and our main website that they can utilize to reach out to us. Also, if there's any information overseas that someone gets, whether it's, you know, a U.S. citizen or otherwise, they should contact their local U.S. embassy. Indeed. Um, and it's likely true that in that inside that U.S. embassy or consulate abroad, there might be an FBI representative, but someone someone will respond to your information. A good a good thought. What else do you have to share with us? So the next case I really want to touch upon is a little more recent um, and is uh, on Emmanuel Luchman, who was a subject in investigation run out of the Rochester Resident Agency Joint Terrorism Task Force. Now, in 2015, the Islamic State of Iraq and uh, Levant, ISIL, also known as ISIS, directed Luchman to plan an attack on New Year's Eve to kill non-believers and infidels as a way of his pledging allegiance to the terrorist organization. Luchman had previously served time for gang activity, and it's believed he converted to Islam while incarcerated. He also spoke fluent Arabic. So Luchman had posted expressions of support for ISIS on social media to include images, videos, and documents related to the organization and violent jihad. He was also downloading and watching terrorism-related videos. Now, eventually, in the process of this, he came into contact with uh, an ISIS recruiter online who eventually, I don't want to say was the sole responsibility for radicalizing him, but really escalated his radicalization and started uh, pushing him to conduct an attack. Well, first of all, to come over to the caliphate. And at the time, understand for our listeners is that that was really at the peak of where ISIS caliphate overseas had uh, gained ground territory and was uh, starting to attempt to expand further. So he was being encouraged to come over to the caliphate and to fight for ISIS. But Luchman didn't have the money. So he was directed to conduct an attack in New York City. Well, he didn't have the money for that either. So they directed him to conduct an attack in Rochester, New York. In addition, he was also directed uh, during this attack to specifically grab a female at the restaurant that he was planning to attack and to live stream her beheading all as a way of pledging himself to ISIS and therefore increase the terror aspect of ISIS abroad. Now, thankfully, unbeknownst to Luchman, we'd already had an investigation on him at the time, and he was also communicating with individuals cooperating with the FBI, discussing details of his plan New Year's Eve attack. Uh, This included the potential targets. So... Through various forms of investigative methods, we identified his activities, his connections, and then what really moved this case into its endgame phase was that uh, we determined he planned to kill his girlfriend before he conducted the attack. So, you know, because of that direct threat to uh, an individual, uh, the JTTF in Rochester moved very quickly to apprehend him. On December 29th, uh, we know that Luchman went to a store in Rochester to purchase supplies for his attack, including ski masks, knives, machete, zip ties, duct tape, ammonia, and latex gloves. And on December 30th, 
He was arrested by the FBI in Rochester after he made a video pledging allegiance to ISIS. Now, what I'd like to note for him specifically is during his trial, he maintained his remorse for his actions throughout the entirety of the trial up until the conclusion of his sentencing. After he was sentenced, he laughed and reaffirmed his allegiance to the terrorist organization in court in front of everybody. So that really kind of goes to the mindset and how radicalized and fully ingrained and how he really did intend to carry out these attacks and the beheading of a female during the assault. Going back to what we discussed about before, this investigation required massive coordination between the Joint Terrorism Task Force, New York State Troopers, Rochester Police Department, and other local, state, and federal equities. And I you know, apologize not being able to name all of them at the time, but you know, it, it was a full court press in a complete team effort across the board to be able to take this investigation for where it began as it ramped up very quickly and then to execute the arrest to ensure that the attack didn't occur, that he didn't get the chance to kill his girlfriend and no one else was harmed in the process. Yeah, thanks. For, thanks for sharing that. Um, you've really taken us inside the inner workings of a not only a field office, but a joint terrorism task force and really shared some high profile results. It's all about impact. It's all about mitigating the threat and risk. And it sounds like the men and women of FBI Buffalo are doing just that. Our guest this episode has been Supervisory Special Agent Gareth Johnson of the FBI's Buffalo Field Division. Gareth, thank you for sharing your career, your cases, and your mission with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to get to discuss some of our cases that highlight the importance of task forces. You know, often we can't you know talk about these cases for many years due to the classified nature of our work. Um, and, you know, two things I'd really like to touch upon before we close out is that, you know, these two cases are really part of an evolution of the task force model across the FBI. The Buffalo Division alone has many great investigations demonstrating the value of task forces, the cases I discussed, uh, to working train robberies, drug cases, murders, cyber attacks, and conducting counterintelligence investigations against our adversaries. And second, while I'd like to take full credit for all these, you know, our office is not unique. And that's a fantastic thing. You know, there is incredible work being done uh, across all 56 field offices by task forces like ours. And, you know, they deserve as much credit as what we do for the work they do day in and day out. Indeed they do. And uh, I always send off our guests with, uh, with this request that you go back and thank the team. Um, let them know the public is grateful for the work they do in keeping us all safe. My thanks to Gareth Johnson and all the men and women at FBI Buffalo. Thanks for listening to our 12th episode and inaugural season finale of the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. I hope you enjoyed our first season as much as I enjoyed sharing it with you. I'm thrilled to announce that we'll be back stronger than ever after a brief one-week hiatus with season two and even more insights into your FBI. And if you're a dog lover, as I am, the first episode of next season is for you as we explore the fascinating world of FBI canines. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. 
This show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for the Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.